what would we do if God came down and spoke to us? He has, and he does through his word. Let's read it together. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already announced, pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of God. You will remember last Lord's Day we noted that Paul brought that first matter of concern in Corinth, the issue of quarreling and divisions about their teachers, full circle and to a conclusion. And he essentially left the ball in their court. He said, I've, I've given you all that you need. I'm going to come to you, and when I arrive, what you have done will determine how I treat you when I arrive. When he makes that visit, he'll be able to find out whether any of them had taken what he had said and put it to use. So leaving behind that first issue, he brought it to a conclusion. Now we leave that behind. We enter into chapter 5, and Paul takes up the next major problem in the church of Corinth. And this one being only one chapter, won't take us near as long to cover, although I, I do plan to spend more than one week here. The next major problem in the church of Corinth. Now the passage that we've read is probably one of the more well-known passages of the New Testament. It's famous, or we might would say it's infamous, uh, for both its content and its subject matter. 
with, with regard to its subject matter, when we hear of 1 Corinthians 5, very often our minds will immediately go to church discipline. And, and really, church discipline of the most extreme kind. If there are passages of Scripture that do this for us, usually we think of Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians 5. Most of us, if I say church discipline passage, our minds don't, you don't immediately think 2 Thessalonians 3. Well, that's a church discipline passage as well. This is, this is one of the most famous, I would say the top two more famous or infamous chapters on church discipline. That's what is happening here. And nowhere else in Scripture do we have an entire chapter devoted to a specific case of church discipline. Nowhere else. With regard to its content, usually, if you, if you know your New Testament well, when you hear 1 Corinthians 5, you think of the man who had married his stepmother. That comes to our mind when we hear of this chapter. And we, when we think about that, we sort of sit in shock, or we should sit in shock at, at first, the fact that this has happened. He even says in the passage, even unbelievers don't do this. This is strange. A man has married his father's wife. But also, it shocks us because this man, such a sinner, is a member, up until this point, a member in good standing in a Christian church. And it shocks us. When we think of 1 Corinthians 5, we think of the most extreme kind of church discipline for the worst kind of sin. Here's the question. Is that really, or are those things really, the main point Paul is trying to convey? Is is that why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 5 for us? Has the Holy Spirit kept this so that we would be able to say, wow, what an evil sin took place, and here's how we ought to do church discipline. Is that why Paul wrote this chapter? Well, what I want to do this morning to sort of introduce this chapter is to lay a biblical framework by which we will be able to understand this chapter and through which I think we'll better understand Paul's primary concern. Uh, I would say that if we think of it as the church discipline chapter or the incest chapter, we, we have fallen short of the real issue. I think if that's all we think, we've missed out on the point. Why do I say that? Well, if that's all that it's about, if that's true, then if this kind of sin is not present in this church, well, then it really doesn't have much of a, a pressing, relevant application. We would say, well, now we know what to do if this ever does arrive. But until then, it's, it's all theoretical. I would argue that Paul's main point here, the Holy Spirit's main point here, is to give us principles that actually uh, are pressing and relevant in every church, every Lord's Day, every week, until Christ returns. So I want to show you that. So the, the exposition is going to be very, very high this morning. Notice with me that Paul in this chapter, maybe you noticed this as we read, Paul did not address the man who sinned. He never spoke to the man himself. 
Now, we say, well, that's not, that's not strange. He's writing to the church. Well, it wasn't strange when he said, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That wasn't strange. Uh, whenever he said uh, elsewhere, uh, let the one who doesn't work shouldn't eat, that, that was a specific individual. They knew who he was talking about. Uh, whenever he says things like, children, obey your parents, or husbands, love your wives, he's addressing specific people in the congregation. Right? So it wouldn't be strange for, the, for Paul to address a particular person in the congregation that everybody knew who he was talking about. Um, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. Well, if you weren't an elder, you know he's not talking to you. He's talking to the elders. They, that, they would have known who he was speaking to. But here, he does not address the man. He doesn't write to the man. He says nothing to the man in sin. He addresses the church. He's addressing them as a whole. He didn't even write to the elders. He never says, I exhort the elders among you to do this, this, and this. He writes to the church. A lot of people think that if this kind of thing was persistent in the church, they would say, how could the elders let this continue? Why have the elders not acted? Did the elders not know that there was something to do? Paul never addresses the elders. He addresses the church. The church. That the, the English word you, we have in, in the ESV explicitly used in, in multiple places. In, in verse 1, he says, there is sexual immorality among you. Verse 2, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 4, when you are assembled. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 9, I wrote to you. Verse 11, now I'm writing to you. Verse 12, it is not those inside the church, or is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Every one of those words and the phrases that surround them, all of this is plural. He's addressing a group of people, not just an elder or the elders or the man in sin. He's addressing the whole church as a collective unit. 1 Corinthians 5, I would suggest, is dealing primarily with the response of the church to the sin in their midst. Not just the, the weird sin, but how the church has dealt with it. Now that doesn't make sense to us until we have fixed in our minds Paul's thinking with regard to the church in general and with regard to a local church in particular. We have to remember that this is, this is coming in a time when the concept of the local church was relatively new, right? For us, it's, it's commonplace. We have churches everywhere. Every Christian that we know goes to church somewhere, but this was a relatively new idea. And so we have an apostle writing to a church, giving instructions to a church in a time when the church as a whole was relatively new. Think about the language that he uses in verse 1. Sexual immorality among you or in you. In verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Or that word it, it could be translated in the midst of or in the middle of. Let him be removed from 
the middle of you. Let him be taken out, we could say. Verse 4, he says, when you are assembled, sunago, we get the word synagogue from that language, which was very important to Paul, no doubt. He knew what the synagogues were. Sunago, verse 12, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church, or literally, just inside. Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? And then verse 13, purge the evil person from among you, out of, the word is ek, get that ek, out of you, you all. Paul clearly has in mind a community of people with definable boundaries, rules, and obligations to act together as a whole. That's what he has in mind. Let me break that up a little bit. Paul clearly has in mind a community with definable boundaries. They knew, Paul knew, in this community, there are boundaries. There are people who are in, there are people who are out. If you're out, you're not in. If you're in, you're not out. They knew what it meant to be in and what it meant to be out. They knew that there were, we could call them privileges for being for those who are in and those who are out don't get those things because they're not in. There was a clear demarcation between those who are in and those who are out. He has in mind a community of people with definable rules. There was clearly a code of ethics or morals at play here. In this community, with its definable boundaries, there are some things forbidden inside that community, and there are th some things that are expected inside that community, and those things are different than they might be elsewhere, outside of that community. There is, assumed here, an objective authoritative standard of right and wrong for those who make up the community as they hold communion together. So there's a clear, definable set of rules, and there are also definable obligations that they have to act together. Those in the group are to act together as a collective unit. There are things that they as a unit are to be doing together, and there are things as a unit they, are to, uh, they, they should not allow as a unit. They have to get together and say, we as a unit don't allow that. We as a unit do allow this. They're obligations to act together. You see, what Paul's saying here simply cannot be applied. We could say it makes no sense. It's senseless. It's absurd. If, or in a place, or in a theoretical situation, where there are no definable boundaries determining who's in and who's out. What he says here doesn't make any sense. If that's the, the Christian... Uh, perspective and treatment of life in this world is there is no community where we know that some are in and some are out. You just sort of live and exist and float around in the world. What Paul says here simply cannot be applied where there are no moral expectations, but everybody is free to act however they please. It, it doesn't work. He would say, ought you not rather to mourn? And they would say, I don't know. Ought we? Is there an ought? I mean, maybe that guy should mourn, but I don't feel like I should mourn. 
Is there an objective standard? See, it doesn't make any sense. He's assuming there's a standard. What Paul says here simply cannot be applied where there is no spirit of solidarity, but rather each person or family acts alone as their own authority. Well, that's, that's for y'all to do, but I, as for me and my family, we've decided to do this. So we're going to we'll just forego that and, and do something different. Well, what he's saying here doesn't make any sense. He's assuming the whole group acts as a singular unit. Everybody has determined and agreed we will work together as a unit. In other words, Paul is working according to the basic New Testament presupposition that there is such a thing as a local church. Paul assumes that there is a local church. What he says here doesn't make any sense if there is no local church, if there's only the what we call universal or invisible church, if there's only that or that that actually takes priority over the local church, then what he says here doesn't make any sense. He's assuming that there is a local New Testament church which in the life of the believer in this world takes priority over the concept, the idea of a universal or invisible church. Paul presupposes that this church is a particular visible expression of what the Scriptures call the people of God. Or, in, in the mouth of God Himself, my people. Paul is presupposing that a local church is a visible expression of what God calls my people. And it is interesting, I think, very helpful for us to keep in mind that Paul, a Jew, a former Pharisee, well-versed in the Old, Old Testament Scriptures, having at his disposal primarily the Old Testament Scriptures, presupposes all these things. I don't, I don't think that he had exclusively the Old Testament Scriptures, but that was what he had primarily. So Paul, a Jewish man student of the Scriptures, having at his disposal primarily the Old Testament Scriptures, is presupposing this local New Testament community with definable boundaries, rules, and obligations. And this is where he writes his letter. Now, as Reformed Baptists, we have uh, we could call historical smudges on that have been left on this picture of the church that we need to kind of wipe away to understand it better when we begin to talk about the local church. First of all, we are reformed and covenantal in, our, in the way that we deal with the Scriptures. And I say that not to go into those particulars, but to just point out the negative. We are not dispensational in the way that we read the Scriptures. I don't mean to even go into all of what that means other than this point. We do not believe that the church is a parenthesis secondary to God's main work amongst the Jewish people. That God's real work is amongst the nation of Israel, but for now He's doing some things in the church, but then someday He'll return back to His primary emphasis in Israel. We don't believe that. We don't believe that the concept of the church is merely a New Testament phenomenon. So we, 
to say we are not dispensational is to say we don't drive this hard wedge in between Israel under the Old Testament and the church under the New Testament and they are completely separate things. At the same time, we are Baptists. So while we do certainly see a lot of continuity between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God, Continuity meaning they go together. There's some relationship. We do see a relationship. We don't drive a hard wedge. There is a relationship. But we do not see the nation of Israel as, quote, the church in any other sense except to say that they were an assembly or a congregation. You'll have people who will say what I just said in the first point. The church is not a New Testament phenomenon. Look at the Old Testament and you see the Greek Old Testament, the word ekklesia is used. The congregation, therefore the church, Israel was the church, and they're the same. That's, that's just a bad way to do Bible study. We don't, we don't treat words that way. Yeah, the word is used, but it's not used the way we use it in the New Testament times. The nation of Israel was not, or we, I, I, what I should say is I don't think it's helpful, and you'll read old writers who do this, most of them are Pado baptists but they'll refer to the church in the wilderness or the church under Moses, etc., etc. The word means assembly, the congregation, a big group of people. But I don't think it's helpful to refer to Israel under the Old Covenant as the church. So we, we don't drive a wedge and separate them completely, but we also don't come and say, well, they're basically the exact same thing. Rather, we would say that the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant was both a womb for and a type of the New Testament church. If you're wondering what what does this have to do, remember Paul's a Jew. Paul's working with the Old Testament Scriptures. He's coming out of that Old Covenant community. What is his thinking? The nation of Israel under the Old Covenant was both a womb for and a type of the New Testament church. Now by a womb, what I mean is that the nation of Israel as a whole, the, the ethnic group, contained within it a smaller group that was ethnic Jews. They they were biologically of the same family, but who were also true believers. All of ethnic Israel, they were not all true believers, but there were some in the midst of that nation who were true believers. As Paul says in Romans 9, "...not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring." It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But under the Old Covenant, those children of the promise existed within, primarily, almost exclusively, within that children of the flesh, that group. They were, under that in that time period, the, the true Israel of God that we see in Galatians 6. They were... Even though they were under the Old Covenant, they were also members of the New Covenant because they were true believers. The nation carried them along through history, but also as a womb, the nation of Israel was a vehicle by which the Lord Jesus would come into the world. We see in Genesis 3 that He would come from the seed of the woman, but then in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, we see that that bloodline narrowed down to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to David The Christ would come from that biological line, that family, ethnic Israel. He's going to come from this group. 
And Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So the physical people, Israel, brought us the physical Christ. So that's what I mean by the nation of Israel was a womb for the church, carrying along the true people of God and carrying along the Messiah in whom all the, the true people of God would be are, are found united to Him. But the, church, or the nation of Israel also served as a type of the church. This is very important. The nation of Israel under the Old Testament was a type, a, a foreshadowing, a picture of the New Testament church. So rather than saying the church is a parenthesis, God's main work is Israel, we would say no, the, Israel was never meant to be an end in itself. Israel existed to point to the church to bring about the Messiah and to foreshadow the things that we see now in the New Testament church. The, the church, we would say, is not a, a replacement for Israel. The church is the fulfillment of the promises and types and shadows that were uh, that are seen in the nation of Israel. And, and also, and this gets more specifically to what Paul is presupposing in 1 Corinthians 5, Israel typified or foreshadowed the church in her lawful self-governance under God. Israel was given by God a law by which they were to conduct themselves in the land of Canaan, and they were also given a structure of government so that the authority of God could be mediated among that people. Israel was not given a, a governmental structure to govern the, the Medes and the Persians or the Babylonians or the Romans. They were given a law from God for them and a government structure given to them to order themselves and that God, so that God's authority could be mediated among the people. And what we see is in the New Testament... This is a, a, a phrase from our confession. The general equity of those Old Testament laws given to the nation of Israel are applied to the New Testament church. Not to Rome, not to Corinth, not to Greece, but to the church. For example, Matthew 18, 16. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 2 Corinthians 13.1 Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where did Paul get that? Where did Paul get that idea? We got it from the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That law he applies to the church, not to Corinth, not to Rome. In our society, we say a man is innocent until proven guilty, but one person can come forward with video evidence and say, here's the evidence, they're guilty, and the case is closed. Under God's law, he would say, nope, we've got to have at least two. He applies it to the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Where did he get that idea from? 
He got it from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25, 4, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. I think this is one of those places also where we see Paul quoting from Christ himself, proving that Paul had at least one gospel that he could read from because Christ said the same thing. But that rule is applied in the church. You see, an Old Testament law given to Israel, the general equity of it, the moral foundation of it applied to the church. Israel, as a type of the church, had laws which were to be later applied and carried out in the church. And remember even Paul says in the, in the one passage, is it, for, is it for oxen that these things are written down? Is, is that the main reason why God gave this law? He says, was it not for us? In other words, the main reason for uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, Paul says it wasn't about the oxen. That wasn't the main point. The main point was to get to the real application the laborer deserves his wages. Now, what, again, what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 5? Well, look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. God judges those outside, and then your Bible may have quotes around the last line. Quote, purge the evil person from among you, end quote. Now, we hear that and in our modern years. We think, man, that's harsh. Like this guy's in sin, and Paul says, hey, the next time you get together, kick him out. He's got a, there, there, there are boundaries. He's in right now. The next time you get together, when you leave, he better be out. And we say, man, that's harsh. Is, is, is Paul, has he gone to some extreme? Is he overstepping his boundaries? Where did he come up with this? Deuteronomy twenty two twenty one. They shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. With regard to sexual sin in the church, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. He got that from Deuteronomy, where with regard to sexual sin amongst the people of God, they said, God said, purge the evil from among you. Now, hopefully you notice the difference. We say, man, that, Paul's being harsh here. no. He's not being harsh. God, in giving this prescription, is not being harsh. God, we, we even read, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. What, what, what God is prescribing here, what Paul is prescribing under the influence of the Spirit is merciful and gracious and compassionate. Under the new covenant, the, the prescription is not the death penalty, it's church discipline. Why? Well, because the church... This is where we differ from the nation of Israel. The church is not a geopolitical nation. The church doesn't have the right to wield the sword against evil. We cannot kill those who have sinned in the church. But what we see here is the church does have the right to expel immorality from its ranks. So he takes that Old Testament law, the general equity of it, purge out the evil, he applies it to the church, deliver them, this man, to Satan. The point again is that the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant was a type of the New Testament church. We have to keep that in mind if our, our perspective and our esteem of the church is going to be as high as it should be. We have to keep in mind Israel was a type. So very often we read about the nation of Israel and the laws and the commandments and we say, wow, that was strict. Whoa, God really dealt with those. I mean, he just he kept them in tight. 
He kept that place clean. Okay, that was a type of the church. It wasn't as though God said, we're going to keep these people real strict and clean and tight. And then the church comes along and God says, hey, just do whatever you want. We're free from the law. That's not what we see in Scripture. Israel was a type. Now, based upon that truth is a second truth, and this is an application from that. Our thinking concerning the church must be tethered to God's dealings with Israel under the Old Covenant, both in continuity and discontinuity. The way that we think about the church must be tethered to the way God dealt with Israel in continuity and discontinuity. Some of you kids have played tetherball. You've been out on the playground and there's a pole and a string and a ball, right? You've seen that game? Anybody ever seen that game? The older ones have. Tetherball. To be tethered means to tie together. Some of us have had the bloody nose from playing tetherball before. What I'm saying is when we think about the church, our thinking of the church needs to keep it tied to Israel. In continuity, that is where, where there, there's an ongoing connection between the two, saying some things will stay the same, but also in discontinuity, where there's a break. So we can think of Israel and say, we do it differently because of the break. Because we are not Israel, things are different. Because we are the church, some things will remain the same. We have to always keep that in mind because God has clearly linked these things in Scripture. There's no way to get around it. God has put these things together, and yet many times in our thinking, we don't make the connection. Even though we're not, we would say we're not dispensational. A lot of us were raised in that atmosphere, and so our, we, we just immediately drive a wedge between the Old Testament community or the people of God and the New Testament people of God, that, and that wedge is too big and too bulky uh, more, more, it does more separation than the Word of God does. Very often we treat the church like it's just some out-of-the-blue concoction of the apostles. The New Testament comes along, Christ is crucified, He is buried, He is raised from the dead, He ascends to the heavens, and then there in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are like, what do you guys think we should do? Well, it, it would be cool if, if everybody who's interested in Jesus could have a place where we could get together and, and just share interests together and just hang out together. Oh, I know what we could do. We could start little groups. I'll come over to your house and we'll talk about the things that we like, which is Jesus. And maybe we'll start a group over there and those people will have a place where they can all get together and talk about Jesus. And we think, wow, this is a great idea because we love to get together and talk to people who are interested in the things that we're interested in. And that's the, very often the way that we think about the church. Like it's just a really neat, helpful idea for Christians to get together and do Christian things. Or worse, we actually begin to think about the church as if it were just like many of the, the social groups and clubs of the world. In many of the world's social groups or clubs, individual autonomy is king. We tend to treat the church that way. In these, these worldly groups, you decide whether or not you want to pursue a group. You pick the group that's right for you, and then you join it. You join that group, but... They, they may have meetings once a month or once a week, but if you're busy or you've got something else to do, somewhere else to be, you just say, well, I won't make it this week. I'll make it next week. I'll, I'll miss this month, but I'll catch up next month. You guys go along without me. And, and it's really, in, in our minds, no harm, no foul. Why? Well, because I'm the boss. 
I decided to join this thing. Who are they to tell me when and where I have to be and what I have to do and, and all of that? But contrary to that, with regard to the church, it's not that we just simply autonomously decide that we want to be church members. We do so because of the command of God. God has commanded that the people of God gather together in a covenant assembly. We can't imagine an Israelite under the old covenant who said, yeah, God said three times a year, but I got some stuff I got to catch up on over here, so I'll catch y'all next quarter. We can't imagine that. But we treat the church very often very differently. In many of the world's social groups or clubs, democracy is supreme. And so you might have a leader, you might have general plans, this is why this group exists, this is what we're going to do. But many times the group as a whole will get together and they'll toss around ideas for whether they will do this or that and 50% plus one rules the day. That's how, that's how they decide what they'll do. But in, in the church, it's not democracy which rules. It's God's command in His Word. So we don't get together and ask, hey, what, what does everybody think we should do? We get together and we say, what, we ask, what does God's Word say that we should do? And we do that. And again, we can't imagine the Israelite under the Old Covenant making that that oh, three time in a year once journey, getting to Israel, meeting together with some of his brethren and saying, hey, let's take a survey. What do you guys think we should do this year? No, they showed up at God's commandment to do what God commanded them to do. In many of the world's social groups, it's personal creativity and opinions which prevail. And so you might gather together for a meeting and they say, well, we got some several things coming up. The spring's coming up. The summer's coming up. Everybody go home and brainstorm or, or come up with some ideas. And then when we come back, we'll all brainstorm together as to, to what we might do over the coming months or years. But in the church, it's not this way. Personal opinions are actually very irrelevant in the church. We, 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 again, go back to Israel. We can't even imagine this type of thing happening under the Old Covenant. We'd say, that's absurd. No, no, God was strict back then. Has God changed? No. Is there this wedge driven between the two where there's no connection at all? No. We can't find that biblically. So there, there is continuity between these things, but there is also discontinuity. God's covenant dealings with Israel have come to an end. The kingdom have, has been taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruits. So much in the church operates in direct contrast to the nation of Israel. Israel's worship was outward, focused on external rituals, things that you could see and hear and taste and, and all of that. Well, the, the church's worship is primarily spiritual and focuses on the inner man. And many churches, they want to make it like that old covenant people, all outward, all, all show, all, all stirring up the emotions by things you can hear and see. But that's not the way the New Testament church works. In, in Israel's community was physical, passing on from generation to generation through blood. But the church's community is made up of people from all nations so that biology has no bearing on church membership. This is where we differ from Pado baptists We're Baptists. You're not born a church member. You must be newborn a church member because it's a spiritual community. Israel's service and worship was tied to an earthly temple in Jerusalem. Well, the church's worship takes place all over the world because the church is a global people. You see, when we think about the church, 
our thinking should be tethered to God's dealings with Israel under the Old Covenant, both in continuity, where we can see the lines continue, and in discontinuity, where we say there's a clear break right there. And we, we cannot continue on that pathway because this has changed. God has put these things together, and we have to keep them together in our minds, but we have to keep it proper. And all of that leads to the third, the third point, the third truth, that comes back to 1 Corinthians 5. Wherever God establishes a community like this, His chief concern is purity. Wherever God establishes a community, His chief concern is purity. And that's what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 5. God's concern for the purity of the church in Corinth. Their, their purity or their moral holiness had been tainted. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that, that was a very serious thing. Under the Old Covenant, there were places where they would say, at certain times of the month, that, that woman's got to go outside. She can't come in here. And those people with certain disabilities or whatever, they can't do this. It was serious. It was a, the, the sort of the apex of that community was whether, you were, whether or not you were allowed to come into the assembly or whether or not you were excluded from the assembly. Purity. There was a problem of purity in the church, and we hear that and we say, right, there was a sexually immoral man among them. No, not that kind of impurity. There was that. But again, Paul didn't write to that man. Paul wrote to the church. Because the primary problem in Corinth was not this man in the church. The problem was the church had allowed this man to continue. The church was not doing its job. The man was a sinner, but the church was not doing its job. Paul's concern is purity, and he wants the church to share that concern for purity because it is God's concern. Wherever God establishes a community, His chief concern is purity. And this is one of those places where there is continuity all the way through Scripture as God deals with people. God's chief concern is purity. Take the Garden of Eden, for example. We read in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You say, where's, where's purity in that passage? Well, that phrase, keep it, means guard over it by watching. In other words, Adam's job was to keep the Garden of Eden pure by watching it and guarding it to keep out intruders. So, if you've got the picture in your mind, there's Eden. Then there's a garden in Eden. There's a clear demarcation somehow of what is in and what is out. And Adam's job is to make sure that what ought not to be in is kept out. To work it and keep it. Adam's job was to deal with impurities. Don't let that come in here. Obviously, he failed. The serpent came into the garden. We also know he was to keep himself morally pure. As soon as he sinned, what happened? He's expelled from the garden. He didn't do his job in keeping the garden. The serpent comes in. Then he's led to sin. When sin enters him, all of a sudden, they got to go. You got to get out of the garden. Why? Because this is the dwelling place of God. You, you cannot leave or you cannot be here. You must leave. 
God's chief concern is purity. The nation of Israel, as we've already seen, and we see it repeatedly, Leviticus 11.44, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. 11.45, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Deuteronomy 13.5, Purge the evil from your midst. Deuteronomy 19.13, Purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel. Deuteronomy 22.24, Purge the evil from your midst. It's a small selection. Repeatedly, over and over, God says, Get the evil out. Get the evil out. Impurities out, impurities out, impurities out. There cannot be impurity here. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm dwelling here. That can't be near me. God's chief concern was purity. And what happened? When they didn't deal with the impurities, but they let it come in and they let it remain, what happened? They were, they were taken over. God kicked them out of the promised land. You cannot be here. You're done. He brought judgment upon them because they didn't deal with impurities. We come to the New Testament church. We see the same principle as we've already read in verse 13. Purge the evil from among you. Among you quoting from the Old Testament. Peter even quotes from the law in 1 Peter 1. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's regarding the church. Now why? What have we seen already? In the Garden of Eden, you've got to be holy. Why? Because God dwells here. If you're not going to be holy, you've got to go. The nation of Israel, you've got to be holy. Why? Because God dwells here. If you're not going to be holy, you've got to go. We come to the church. Why does the church need to be holy? Because God dwells here. God dwells here. Second Corinthians 6, 16 and 17. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. God says, you must be holy because I dwell here. I'm going to walk in the midst of you, and my chief concern is purity. And if we don't deal with impurities, we see this in Revelation, Christ will remove the lampstand. He'll say, I won't walk with you anymore. If you're not going to deal with impurity, I'm gone. Because God cannot be in the presence of impurities. And then, of course, we see this laid out in the future eternal kingdom of heaven. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. God, God's chief concern is purity. And He will make sure no impurity comes here. This is my dwelling place. These are my people. That doesn't come here. God's chief concern, anytime he establishes a community like this, his chief concern is purity. We can be sure, then, negatively, that God's chief concern is not numbers. God's chief concern is not numbers. God said to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any of, of any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. Of all peoples. God's concern is not numbers. In Exodus 32, right out of the gate, the foot of Mount Sinai, 3,000 dead. He don't care. Well, Lord, we'll only have so many. So, my chief concern is purity, not numbers. Amen. In number 16, after Korah's rebellion, 14,700 wiped out. God doesn't care. He wants purity. 
In Matthew chapter 7, Christ Himself says, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. See, God will not trade purity for numbers. So if we're ever in a situation as a church where we have to pick between a large church and a pure church, let us side with God. We want purity because that's what God wants. We can be sure that God's chief concern is not convenience. Do you think that it was convenient for this church to get together the next time they were together and, and remove this man? Is, it, is church discipline ever convenient? No. But God's chief concern is not convenience. Deuteronomy 23, 12 to 14, You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement children. That means they had to go outside the camp to use the bathroom and cover it up and then come back inside the camp. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that He may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. That does not sound very convenient to me. You've got to go outside the camp, take your tools, use the bathroom, cover it up, walk back in. That's not convenient. God's chief concern is not convenience. His chief concern is purity, holiness amongst His people. And if we're ever in a situation where we have to trade purity for convenience, let's side with God. God's chief concern is not safety. In Joshua 7 verse 5, the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate. We say, why, why did those 36 men die? Because Achan kept some of the things that God said destroy. There was sin in the camp. So 36 men got killed because of his sin. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is why some of you are sick and some have died. Because there's impurity and you're coming to the Lord's table. God's not concerned about safety. And if, if we ever have to pick between safety and purity, let us side with God. Because God wants purity. God's chief concern is not positions of authority. In number 16.2, it says, They rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Verse 35, Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men. God doesn't care what position somebody holds in the church. God is not interested in making sure a man keeps his office or his seat of influence. God's desire is purity. And God will not trade the purity of His church for somebody's position. And if we ever have to pick between the purity of the church or a man keeping his office, we have to side with God. God's concern is purity. God's chief concern is not someone's status in the congregation. Leviticus 10, 1-3. Now Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Well, these two men were sons of the high priest, on, on the path to be priests themselves. God was not concerned about that. God wants purity. 
He will even use people of, of such status to prove his point, that he does not care about status in the congregation. He cares about purity. God wants obedience. God will not sacrifice the purity of his church to help someone save face or maintain their status in the congregation. He wants purity. God's chief concern is not family ties. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. God will not sacrifice the purity of His church to make sure that everybody is able to stay on good terms with their family members who may also be in the church. In the church, parents do not show partiality to children. Children do not show partiality to parents. You say, that's my dad, that's my mom, that's my boy, that's my girl. God's not concerned about that. God's concerned about purity. And if we ever have to choose between the purity of the church and keeping peace with family members, let us side with God. And any family member who asks you to do differently doesn't love you anyway. Now, now that's contrary to our typical worldview. That's even contrary to many in our our family-integrated circles who really idolize the family. The family takes priority over the church. But Jesus said, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, this is my family, Lord. I don't care. I'm here for purity. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, when God establishes a community, His chief concern is purity. And that's Paul's concern here in Corinth. You see, sin has entered into the church, yes, primarily in the way that the church has dealt with this man, this known sinner. See, there will always be sinners in the church, and occasionally there will be sinners of this caliber in the church, The problem in Corinth was that the church as a whole had forgotten that when God establishes a community, His chief concern is purity. You don't allow that to continue in the church. As a church, you must deal with it. Sins will often come into the view of the assembly, and the assembly as an assembly, as a unit, has a duty before God to keep the garden pure. And that's our duty as well. As a church, our chief concern is not numbers. Our chief concern is not convenience or safety or positions of authority or or reputations or family ties. It can't be. Our chief concern must be, as a collective unit, purity. Purity. Alluding to... Our study, and, I, and I, I, it's only in the providence of God that this and this chapter and our, our study for this evening have coincided. So this was on my mind. The glory of a true church 
is this. The glory of a true church is not, wow, how big are they? Wow, look at that building. Wow, look at all the programs. Wow, look at all this. Wow, look at all that. No, no, the glory of a true church is its ability and willingness to keep the garden of God free of intruders. If you've read the book yet, you know. The, the main bulk of it is the discipline of the church. That's its glory. The glory of a church is, it, is that it has the power given to it by Christ to bring those into its fold who are pure of heart, but to exclude those who are not. That's its glory. There is a, a, a definable body on the earth in many places all over the world with definable boundaries and rules and obligations, groups of people that have the authority on earth to bring people in and to kick people out, to remove people. The old word was dismember, to dismember people. And God says, right, yes, I agree. If it's been done on earth, it stands in heaven. That's amazing. That's powerful. But you have to do it. Corinth hadn't done it. So, a few, few concluding thoughts. First, hopefully this has been insightful, and perhaps this will help lay the beginnings of a more clear framework through which to understand not only this passage, but uh, the New Testament church and its discipline here and elsewhere. Keep in mind the relationship to the nation of Israel. Pay attention to how much of the old covenant law comes into the church and is applied. Secondly, I trust that the Lord has used this to raise not only our appreciation for the church, but also the sobriety with which we think of and approach matters in the church. The church is, is not the Rotary Club. The church is not a gym membership. The church, it, it is a completely different thing. Invented, originated, begun by God Himself. God started it. This is God's idea. It's God's church, as we'll see this evening. And our, our esteem of it and the, the way that we think of it ought to be very sober. The way that we approach church matters. I heard a sermon this week that all, all church business is holy business. If a church has a business meeting, that's a holy meeting. It's not just throw us some numbers or whatever churches do. That, that's a holy meeting. If a church has to meet for discipline, that's a holy meeting. If the church meets for worship, that's a holy worship service unto the Lord. Our, our esteem needs to be high. And thirdly, obviously, I hope that you would take these things and use them as a means to sober self-assessment. Self-assessment. The question being, have you brought sin into the camp this morning? Are you a Nadab or an Achan? You would be willing to say, well, if the Lord wants to kill about 36 of my brothers and sisters, that's fine as long as I get to hold on to my sin. Are you an Ananias or a Sapphira who has brought sin into the assembly. What we learn from these passages is however secretive people try to be, God knows. God sees. God brings it out. There's no way to hide. It will be brought out. Have you brought sin into the camp? 
If so, look with me at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 5. The end of the verse. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you might say, Oh, I have sins. I'm tainted. I'm unclean. I've brought impurities into the congregation in my own heart. I'm the intruder. I can't believe that people have even let me in this room. If that's you, just remember that Jesus Christ, our Lamb, has taken away sins in His own body on the cross, that He Himself was led outside the camp and crucified for sinners, that our sins have been purged in His body on the tree. You say, I'm, I'm the sinner. I've brought the sins in. Okay, then take them to Jesus Christ. Take your sins to Him. Confess them to Jesus. Tell your heavenly Father, I've got sins to be charged to the account of Christ. And He will say, done deal. It's finished. You may go free. That's what He came to do. Take your sins to Him. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. In an instant, in a moment. Take your sins to Christ. As quick as you can take them to Christ, so quickly the Father says, what sins? They're purged. If you will take your sins to Christ. Let's pray together.